I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the potential Russian invasion of Ukraine and what the United States might do about it, we have with us Dr. Seth Jones, Senior Vice President at CSIS, and also the Director of our International Security Program and our Harold Brown Chair in Strategy. Seth, is this actually an invasion, what the Russians have done? That's the first question I have. Everybody is like saying, you know, Putin says he's sending peacekeepers. Doesn't sound right to me. Well, look, I mean, the reality is that Vladimir Putin has said he's sending in Russian tanks, armored personnel carriers, and other military equipment into a sovereign country without the approval or invite of that country. That is, in a very technical sense, and both letter and law, that is an invasion. They are not being invited in. In fact, quite the opposite. And they say the places that they've gone into, it's it's Luhansk and Donetsk, which both of them declare themselves to be free republics and not part of Ukraine. So there's also that bit of confusion people might be having. So what is it? Are they actually part of Ukraine, those two places, or, or not? Well, here's the reality. In 2014, Russia decided not to invade Ukraine with conventional forces. This is not long after they annexed Crimea. The decision at that point was essentially to start an insurgency. So they provided military equipment, tanks, armored personnel carriers, towed artillery, ammunition, and then deployed some units, particularly main intelligence director at the GRU, as well as Russia's foreign intelligence service, the SVR, into Ukraine to provide assistance to, and actually to build uh, resistance efforts that would fight the Ukrainian government. So it was what we call an irregular operation. And so from that point onward, what we've seen is Russians have backed irregular forces in Ukraine that have fought against the Ukrainian government. Now we're starting to see the Russians move into much more of an overt conventional invasion of Ukraine. And that obviously escalates the situation pretty dramatically. So this is Ukrainian territory. And from the beginning, this has been Russian assistance to rebels that they created in Ukraine. So this is just deciding not to do it initially with conventional forces, but predominantly with irregular ones. And I should also say to our listeners, we're talking on Tuesday, February 22nd at about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. This is just after President Biden spoke to the nation about putting forward sanctions against Russia. Seth, Washington and its allies have called the Kremlin's recognition of these two separatist regions a blunt defiance of international law that risks war. Western officials have said that Russian troops have entered eastern Ukraine. The administration and Biden himself have called this the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. They don't know when it's going to stop. And Biden has said that this is just the first tranche of sanctions. What do you think the administration and our allies are prepared to do here? Well, the administration has decided to use kind of an escalatory ladder, both of sanctions and to take some military steps. On the sanctions, what they've indicated is that they have opted to pursue a first tranche of sanctions targeting VEB and a military bank in Russia, uh, also to place sanctions on Russian sovereign debt so that it can no longer raise money from the West. I think there are a range of steps the administration could take 
to increase the sanctions, including on the import of microelectronics or other kinds of high-tech equipment and processors into Ukraine. On the military side, the U.S. has taken some steps to provide essentially additional support to NATO countries, including the Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. What is not clear at this moment is to what degree the U.S. is prepared to do what it did, first the Carter administration and then the Reagan administration did with the Afghan resistance in Afghanistan in the 1980s, and that is essentially provide significant long-term military assistance uh, to the Ukrainian government to push back against Russian conventional and irregular operations. The president has been a little bit unclear about to what degree the U.S. is, is, is prepared to do that. So one of the things that he has said, though, is that his action today means that we've cut the Russian government off from Western finance. Biden said the Russian government can no longer raise money from the West and cannot trade in its new debt on our markets or uh, European markets either. Is that really going to bother them? I think at the end of the day, you know, two interesting case studies, Andrew, on sanctions kind of in, in terms of attempting to change behavior, we've got several decades of sanctions against Iran, including uh, the U.S. and the West. Iran, despite incredibly asphyxiating sanctions that have decimated its economy, sent uh, the currency northward. The result has been that uh, Iran's behavior has not changed. They continue to provide assistance to a range of Iranian proxies and partners throughout the region. They continue to build missile system now almost capable of conducting attacks against almost every European capital. North Koreans, despite intensive sanctions, continue to produce more nuclear-capable missiles and, and nuclear weapons. So the reality is that I think sanctions, they, they can impose some costs, but their track record of changing behavior is very mixed, if not poor. So I think what this means is that I think particularly with Putin's meetings with uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese, I think at the end of the day, Putin is not going to be deterred because of economic sanctions. Military assistance to Ukraine, that might be a different matter, but economic sanctions, I don't think he's going to care that much at the end of the day. So do we have any leverage here other than potentially giving military assistance to the Ukrainians? Well, there's certainly costs that can be imposed by economic sanctions. And I think if there was an escalation of the types of equipment technology exported to Russia, that would have some impact. Removing the Russians from SWIFT in the banking sector would have an impact. So those all start to raise uh, the costs. There are other steps that the Treasury Department can do. There's a bit of a political isolation now the Germans appear to be on board, deeply concerned with the Russians, including now agreeing to keep the spigots off of the pipeline. That's a big deal. I think the issue is, it, you know, economic sanctions in and of themselves, in isolation, I don't think are going to deter. But as part of a broader package that includes economic, political isolation, military assistance to Ukraine and other steps, I think, you know, that starts to raise the cost for the Russians. It's interesting. During the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the aftermath of Afghanistan, President Biden and his administration got an awful lot of criticism. 
I'm not hearing a lot of criticism of the way he's conducting our affairs right now. In fact, to the contrary, I'm hearing that he's doing a good job, that he's taken bold action, that he's being strong, that he understands this probably better than anyone, um, having spent decades working on policy in that, in that region. What are your thoughts about how the administration's handling it? Are there other things they could be doing? And, you know, does it feel like we have a pretty good handle on what we're going to do going forward? Well, Andrew, I think there was some criticism early on of the administration for kind of a reactive approach to to Vladimir Putin and the Russians. And, you know, the president made a comment that that got a lot of criticism from across the board about opposing uh, the Russians unless he took only a limited amount of territory, at least that's the way it was interpreted. But I think since then, one of the things that's been interesting in the administration's approach, and I think which has led to a fair amount of support and praise, is the amount of intelligence that's been declassified on Russian movements and then internal Russian decisions to conduct both irregular activity, but also decisions about invasion and where they might invade and the targeting of cities like Kiev and potential dates that the Russians might operate. So what it's meant is it's put Putin into a, probably a more difficult position than he otherwise would have. It's been hard, I think, for the Russians to control the narrative on Ukraine because the, the Biden administration has, in many cases, been a step ahead of them in guessing what they might do. And in fact, which is what they've done. The challenge, I think, is going to be if Putin actually does invade Ukraine and deterrence fails, what then will the Biden administration be prepared to do? Because uh, without some kind of resistance, including potentially military support to Ukraine, the Russians may very well overrun and then attempt to annex all of Ukraine. And then this will have happened on this administration's watch. So this one is not over. There are plenty of serious decision points that the administration is going to, it's going to have to make some important decisions. Americans, you know, if you look at our cable television and our network television, it's, it's pretty much, this is the lead story on cable right now. It's pretty wall to wall what's going on. But what do you think this conflict means to the average American? Do you think the average American is invested in Ukraine's security, cares enough that we would expend any kind of effort regarding you know, our own military assets, our own soldiers, um, and, you know, other, and our financial? Uh, and and you know, obviously, this could also cripple the global financial order. How does this affect Americans? Well, there are two ways. Just from a operational and tactical level, the an escalation in U.S., Russian, or broader Russian, Western activity could clearly impact the U.S. homeland or could impact and already has to some degree the price of gas and oil, which would have a direct impact on what U.S. individuals pay at their local gas stations. Yeah, I paid almost $80 to fill up my tank the other day. I couldn't believe it. It was just astonishing. So there certainly would be an impact if there's escalation. Russian, Russians GRU and SVR, its military and then its foreign intelligence agency have conducted aggressive cyber attacks against U.S. companies and U.S. government agencies. So there is a potential for offensive cyber operations. 
The Russians earlier this year also uh, put ships just off the coast of Ireland. The clear signal and the signal that NATO took was that these were a threat to the fiber optic cables that go underneath the Atlantic, that the Russians could cut, much like there have been fiber optic cables cut off the coast of Norway and Svalbard. So we'd all be getting a collective busy signal, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, but these are these are all issues that could impact the homeland. Then there's the broader issue, which I don't know that the U.S. has made a clear case to the American population along these lines. And that is that part of the question writ large here is, you know, if you look at Freedom House, Freedom House has documented 15 consecutive years of decline in democracy and a rise in authoritarianism. And what we see with the Russians and, and the Chinese that, that also are backing them here is they are authoritarian regimes. They are countries that do not support freedom of the press. They don't support you know, general capitalism. And so part of this has you know, much bigger issues at stake. This would be a, if the Russians succeed in Ukraine, this would be another demise of a democratic state. You know, not a perfect one. And that has broader strategic implications for what America actually stands for and how it was founded. And I think that is a bigger, bigger issue and may actually have some support within the American population because that's how this country was founded. Now, in Europe, this is all right on you know, Western Europe's doorstep. And, you know, we keep hearing that this could be the greatest conflict, armed conflict in, in Europe since World War II. The, the Europeans are, are, are getting increasingly nervous. And today, you know, as you said, the Germans have said they're cutting off the pipeline. They're taking this more seriously now. What do you think the Europeans will do? Well, I think what we've seen, Andrew, is you know, despite the attempt, even in President Biden's remarks to say that the allies, among the allies and partners, there is unity, that there are differences in in allied responses. The British have been pretty forward-leaning and aggressive on providing military assistance to the Ukrainians. They've provided anti-tank launchers and missiles, the end laws. Some Baltic states have pushed to do the same. There have been some countries like the Germans that have not supported providing military assistance to Ukraine. There have been some European countries uh, that also have resisted cutting off the Russians from SWIFT. That's the global uh, electronic messaging service that facilitates financial transactions between banks around the world. So I think what we'll see as we go along is European countries will differ, including the US, on what steps to take in some areas. There'll be unity in others. And I think this is a case where the US, I think, is going to have to lead or we're going to see significant division among the US and European partners and allies. Seth, one of the things that has been different about this conflict, and it's been borne out by your analysis, you have had access to commercially available satellite imagery, you and Joe Bermudez Jr. at CSIS. And how has that affected how you do your work and contributed to collective U.S. understanding about this conflict? Well, Andrew, I, I can't remember at any point in at least my lifetime the ability to actually watch the buildup and the beginning stages of a war all happening in public the way we have seen with the war in Ukraine. We have worked uh, closely with CNN 
to get images and discuss them basically real time to count the number of Russian main battle tanks and armored personnel carriers and Iskander's missiles and to look at those images a week later, see the buildup, put a percentage increase on them to actually see them, then to look at them a couple of weeks later and to do that with aircraft, strategic bombers, to look at ships in the Black Sea. This is all happen happening essentially in public. The commercial technology available to folks outside of the government now allows everyone to watch war happening. It's, it's both very illustrative, it provides significant granular information, but it's also terrifying in the same, same way because you can, you can see the buildup and the movement of forces occurring. One of our most recent satellite imagery that we shared with CNN and then went on as breaking news was Russian-backed main battle tanks in Luhansk and Donetsk. These are the ones that have been moving over the past couple of days. We've been watching those. I mean, I cannot remember a time where, where the commercial technology has existed that allows you to do that. It's really an ama amazing for an analyst to, to be able to do that. Yeah, and you and I as both former journalists, we know that this is the ultimate, you know, show your work, not don't just tell about your work. This is the, the imagery of this is so vivid. My phone's been ringing off the hook from CNN and other networks saying, can we get Seth on? Because you're able to take this commercially available satellite imagery from Maxar Technologies and really study in real time what's happening. Yeah, and we, you know, there's a team at CSIS that has been doing it. We've got folks that have been identifying the key areas to look at. Then we've got folks that are passing those geo coordinates on to Maxar and other satellite companies. And then we've had folks that are counting the number and identifying. You know, there are a lot of people that use satellite imagery, Andrew, but there are a few that actually know what they're looking at. We know the kinds of weapon systems that they're looking at and then are counting it over time. And then there are others that are trying to talk about it publicly. So we've got a big, you know, we've got a team that is doing various aspects of this. It's, it's really impressive to watch. Yeah. I mean, this is 21st century research at its finest. At real time. If you're following this closely in the media, the, the coverage is pretty breathless and it's pretty amped up. Should it be so amped up in your view? Yeah, I do think there's a lot at stake here. This has the potential for the largest land war among a major state in Europe really since the since World War II. There was obviously a pretty tough war in the Balkans that was more of a civil war. This is this is an interstate war, particularly if the Russians conduct a massive invasion of Ukraine. And again, there's a lot at stake also with the future of the global international order between Western democratic states that support free and open societies and then those that don't. So I think based on the type of military conflict and then what's at stake right now, politically, economically, socially, that I think this is a big deal. It feels like we're slipping into the abyss here with this and that, you know, this is going to go south pretty quick and the Russians are going to be rolling into Kiev and taking over. Is that your sense or, or are we a ways away from that? When you watch the coverage, it feels like, or listen to it, it, it feels like, you know, this is really happening. It's really eminent. Or are we a ways away from that? 
Well, I think what we can say, Andrew, is that the Russians have the capabilities to conduct those actions. They've got about 105 battalion tactical groups. And they now have 190,000 troops on the ground. Now, those do include irregular forces, so some of the units that they've been supporting inside of Ukraine, some that we've shown with satellite imagery. These are Russian-supplied tanks and towed artillery. So it includes that, plus the Russians have about 500 strike aircraft capable of conducting pretty quick attacks inside of Ukraine, plus about 40 combat ships in the Black Sea. So the Russians are in a position where they could expand this. One of the things that Vladimir Putin is going to have to think through is the Russians don't have a recent history of conducting large maneuver warfare, that is, with Russian forces on the ground in Syria the Russians struck targets from the air and from maritime vessels in the Mediterranean. But the maneuver element, the ground forces, were Syrian units, Lebanese Hezbollah, Iraqi, Palestinian, Afghan militia groups. So the Russians didn't deploy combat forces in any meaningful way, and there wasn't Russian bloodshed. The bigger that Putin goes into Ukraine and the more he risks Russian blood – Russian soldiers' blood. That has political risks. And in fact, Andrew, one of the things that's been interesting is we've been monitoring some of the discussions in Russia right now on social media platforms and newspapers. And there is definitely some concern about a major Russian war in Ukraine and whether it's worth the cost in blood and treasure for Russia. That would certainly undermine Putin's legacy. And they don't have a lot of treasure. They do not have a lot of treasure. Now, the Chinese have a bit more treasure, which they can lend to the Russians, probably not unlike what the Chinese have done to the Sri Lankans and the Pakistanis and others. But you're right. The Russians, the Russians are not – it's not a rich economy. They certainly have oil and gas reserves, but it's not China. They don't have the growth rates that China has. They don't have the large population. You know, Russia is more vulnerable in that sense. Are they vulnerable with having, you know, almost 200,000 troops – forward-leaning, are, are they vulnerable to attack in, in Moscow or St. Petersburg? I mean, not that anybody is going to, but it just seems like they put all their assets forward here. I don't think so because I don't think there's any interest or high probability, even medium probability of anyone pushing forces in, into Russia itself. So no, I don't think there's a, a plus at the end of the day, there's a nuclear deterrent here. Sure. So the Russians have nuclear weapons that they could that they could use as a backup. So if they continue to do this, is this going to be one of these situations where we all have to learn to live with it as there's new facts on the ground? And we're just going to say, okay, well, you know, we didn't want to risk our own blood and treasure, and this isn't our battle, and Ukraine's not part of NATO, and just basically became a functioning democracy not too long ago. You know, what's our, you know, in the end game, what's our responsibility here? Well, I think that question will continue to be a major one in the U.S. I think at the end of the day, though, where the debate may come down is to what degree does the United States and the West support a democratic Ukraine? Even if they're not going to send forces into Ukraine, which the U.S. and NATO countries are not, and they've already indicated that, can they still support Ukraine from an economic, a military, an information operations, an intelligence perspective, and in, in ways that they do not support what Russia has done, and they are willing to provide long-term resistance to the Russians. And I think 
you know, that's kind of where the the debate lines will likely fall. This also suggests that this war is likely to to uh, continue for the foreseeable future. Even if the Russians do overrun chunks of Ukraine, the reality there is if there is outside assistance, this then turns into a Ukrainian insurgency against Russian-controlled territory. And as we know, these kinds of insurgencies can last for well over a decade. So I, I think this one, sadly, because of Ukraine just sits, it's caught right now between the West and Russia, but it it's a democratic country, so it symbolizes quite a bit that we may see, unfortunately, a prolonged, protracted war in Ukraine, and we just feel for the Ukrainian population that may have to deal with it. It would be tough for us to live with that, too. It would be tough for us to live. I think the question at the end of the day is, is if they're asking for assistance, is it better to give them what they're asking, or do we just let them get overrun? Seth Jones, a lot to think about here, and I know we'll be talking about this in the coming days as you continue to analyze satellite imagery, um, which can all be found at CSIS.org, and you continue to do analysis of what's happening and what our U.S. response is. Seth, thank you so much for helping us to get to the truth of the matter about this evolving, evolving issue. Thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 